Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So there, there is a legitimate argument against term limits, and here it is is that if, let's say I had term limits of six years or eight years, which they do in California. Mm -hmm. People show up and they're not even able to organize into coalitions. They don't really know what's going on. And then the lobbyists just freaking run rings around them and just like, you guys don't, don't know the what's up. The institutions go around the elected officials, right? It's the consultants that stick around and leech or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's so much churn that yeah. the, you can't actually build like the the proper degree of and people probably just running for their next office too if you if you have to be out in a certain amount of time yeah it's a little bit too short term yeah. so that so there's a very legitimate counter argument to this it's one reason why I, i'm proposing 18 years per house because that's six house terms three senate terms it's enough time for you to actually build a degree yep. of organization uh, and hierarchy and also, if you served in both houses, you could have a very full 36-year career yeah, you do for all time, be, yeah. being a, a representative. So, so that strikes me as like the right balance. Um, so there, the, the le legitimate counterargument is like, look, you can't make it too short. And I was like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Hmm. Um, 18 years is a pretty long time. And when people, the other thing they talk about is like the learning curve. And I'm just like, what learning curve takes more than 18 years? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> And we are back in the studio, Zach and Andrew, tearing <laughs> it up forward style. Tearing it up. I am back from the road for a hot minute, uh, but I'm back on the road later this week. By the time this comes out, I'll be doing Bill Maher on Friday. So we're doing a West Coast Swing, which should be a lot of fun. I got to say, meeting people on the road has been a blast. The people who follow this podcast and the people who show up to book events, obviously, are a lot of the same people. And so there's just been a lot of love, a lot of warmth, a lot of affection. I have a lot of truth, a lot of reason, a lot of optimism and can do and people who are willing to envision a different future. It's been positively delightful. The crowds look pretty good. Did you get a little nostalgic being back on the back on the road a bit? I did because like I saw rallies? a lot of people. I saw a lot of familiar faces. Like the Chicago event, I, for example, there are a lot of people who were like, hey, I was in Iowa. Mm -hmm. I was at Yangapalooza because, you know, Chicago and Iowa aren't that far apart. Right. Um, so there were some familiar faces, some new people. It, it was like revisiting the presidential campaign in many respects. And then when I talked about the book, I talk about the presidential campaign right. a fair amount because the first third of the book is just a retrospective on the presidential campaign. And for people who've enjoyed that part of the book, 
Our friend Zach Grauman here has a book coming out about the presidential campaign, where 100% of the book is about the presidential campaign, whereas in, in, in my case... <laughs> it's all the stories. You know, it, it's, uh, I, you know I, I wouldn't say the bulk of my book is about the campaign, but Zach's is. And Zach had a better perspective on the campaign than I did, honestly. I was like the guy behind the guy, if you will, right? I got to see everything you did, but from a non-Andrew Yang perspective, if that makes sense. So, um, well, glad that the trips are going well. You're, uh, well, we're on the road... We're in LA next week. We're doing a lot. You're in Iowa. You've got a bunch. We'll, we'll have the dates at the end of this podcast. Today, we got a bunch to talk about. Um, and, but I wanted, I think you wanted to start with, which I'm open to. There was some crazy news about China today that blew my mind. And we need to talk about it, I think. <laughs> oh, so th- this is something I want to talk about because one of the big points I'm trying to hit when we're doing these talks, at this point, everything is on the table. Like whatever nightmarish dystopian scenario you can imagine, it's now a realistic possibility in the United States of America. And tensions with China have been running high, and it was just announced that apparently China tested a hypersonic missile Mm -hmm. earlier this year, and it didn't hit its target, but it still came pretty close. Uh, And this was a massive deal for people in the U.S. because... They looked at it and said, oh, wow, we didn't know they could do that yet. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I just heard randomly. I hear random things at, at different points. But apparently there's an engineer at a company that makes drone components here in the U.S. who just got a directive, you know, let's call it like a couple of weeks ago from the U.S. government to ramp up their production something like, like 100x, where all of a sudden the U.S. thinks it's going to need a whole lot more drones and think about what that might mean. Like, why would the United States be ordering tons and tons of drones or at least instructing manufacturers to have the capacity to develop a component at scale that's integral to drones? I don't... Um, well, it can't be something that's passive. It's probably something violent. Um, <laughs> but I don't know why. Well, what, what it made me think is, wow, the U.S. is starting the game plan as if uh, it's going to have more need for... Uh, for military drones, mm-hmm. and that that probably means a foreign theater. Uh, yep. And the one that came to mind for me was China. Mm-hmm. So what this meant for me is that whatever nightmare scenarios that I have been imagining, I will confess to you all, most of them have been domestic because there's no shortage of domestic nightmare scenarios. Uh, you can see you know, our climate degrading. You can see our environment degrading. Our certainly our political discourses, infrastructure, AI, AI healthcare. You know the list. Yeah. Yeah, but now we can add into the mix China. geopolitical <laughs> tensions, possible ramping up of a oh. Cold War or worse uh, between the U.S. and China. Afghanistan wasn't great. Um, I think we talked a little bit on this podcast, um, but this is. Clearly, a different a different beast. Um, for those of you, uh, for those of us who don't know, let's call it idiots like me. What you know what hypersonic means when they're in the sense that in the way they're using it right now does that mean it breaks the sound barrier? Um, is yes, I, I think that, I saw that something work? that said they go five times the speed of sound or something along those lines, and they they go at a different uh, altitude where they go lower than the conventional ICBMs, which are the intercontinental uh, ballistic okay. missiles, where those essentially you know, go way high and like leave orbit more or less. Uh, these hypersonic ones are suborbital, where they go high, but they, they don't go as high. Got it. And that makes them harder to, for example, knock down or keep track of. 
So I read, at your recommendation, Kai-Fu Lee's book, not his newest one, I read uh, AI Superpowers. And one of the things they talked about was China was able to prepare a national response to, in their eyes, climate change, but they're not doing that. But to AI in particular, was that book is about while in the U.S., like we're still fighting over whether or not climate change is, exists or not, and we're still fighting over whether coronavirus is bad for you and whether you should wear a mask or whatever you get on the list. Um, like even if we don't, or even if we do get our shit together, if you will, as a country, is China's just models set up better to navigate the, a world that's like called a post-Facebook online world, um, a post-social media, 24-hour news cycle world? Are they just better set up to lead in this new world? Like, what are your thoughts on China's positioning relative to us? Well, Kai-Fu Lee makes the argument that China has more access to more data, which makes sense. Yep. Uh, and also their citizens are more comfortable sharing data and, mm -hmm. and uh, having it be incorporated into their daily lives. There is uh, essentially a cash-free society in a lot of China now where right. if you were to bust out paper bills, they'd look at you like you sprouted a second head. Mm -hmm. Um, so that means more and more data, obviously, because you, you, you're tracking all these transactions. The Chinese model, one of the, the most unfortunate things that's happened over the last several years, in my opinion, has been the forking of the technology road, where China was using a lot of Western software, mm -hmm. Android, Google-based in particular. Uh, and that was one of the things that would help keep the world together, uh, keep us from going to war. And then... For a couple of reasons, China essentially said, screw it, we have to develop all of our own technology platforms. We can't be dependent upon U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. Part of that was that the U.S. under Trump started saying, hey, like we, we, we really don't want to be uh, working with China in these ways. We don't trust China. And when China was manufacturing uh, network equipment that we were going to use here in the U.S., the Trump administration said, no, no, no. Right. Trump was also examining TikTok, which is... Uh, essentially a Chinese-owned company. Mm -hmm. And that one's interesting because a lot of young people in America use TikTok and it's delightful and everything else. I have a TikTok account. Check it out. Official Andrew <laughs> Yang. You haven't you are on TikTok. been on TikTok until you found your favorite political figure slash, you know, whatever <laughs> the hell I am nowadays. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but there's a lot of data in TikTok. You know, a lot of young people. Their algorithm's people ridiculous, yeah. Um, and someone having access to all of that uh, is maybe problematic if that someone is a foreign government in the mm -hmm. in the case of China. So China essentially said, look, we have to develop our own stuff. We have to not be reliant upon the U.S. And this to me is a disaster over time because you're developing essentially two parallel technology universes. But because they have their own technology universe and China has much more autocratic control, mm -hmm. you can see them making various leaps ahead of us because there are some advantages to it. The counter argument is that most of the true innovation comes from U.S. companies and universities. And the trillion dollar question is whether there's going to be another leapfrog in terms of the way AI gets developed from machine learning to something else. Uh, I'm somewhat dubious. I think at this point, if you have more data, you're probably going to be advantaged. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the limitations of the Western model in AI. We're seeing it in other ways, too. And I just saw a report today saying that a Republican member of Congress, Mike Gallagher, on the House Armed Services Committee said that China's going to beat us in a Cold War yeah. um, because their, their model 
has advantages when you're just looking at national competitiveness. They can appropriate whatever resources. They can tell companies what to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas here in the U.S., it's a different relationship. So actually, I think most people listening to this probably want, I, I want your thoughts on this. I imagine most agree with this. I've heard that a lot in various, that statement in various capacities. China's kicking our ass. Um, it's been a running joke in a number of ways, um, uh, whether it's like pop culture and things like that. But w- we never talk about what that means when it pans out. Let's say China does, quote unquote, beat us or start operating more effectively than us, becomes the new superpower, becomes a new America. Like, what does that look like? I don't I don't think it's in either of our country's interest to go to like an all-out war, right? I think you're more likely just, we just have to bend over to their whims at certain, slowly but surely in certain areas, whether it's economic, probably economic generally, but it probably stemmed from there. Like, what is, in your opinion, I know it's probably, it's definitely speculation. What does this look like if China starts winning? What does that mean? Well, the the major question is, would the U.S. accept yeah. a China that was, quote unquote, winning? And the U.S. has had primacy and dominance in the world for so long mm-hmm. that a lot of its policies are built around maintaining that dominance. Right. I think the single most important element of that to a lot of folks would be the dollar standard mm-hmm. that China has been trying to make the renminbi competitive. It has not worked mm-hmm. really. Right. Uh, but I do I think the U.S. would go to great, great lengths, including uh, aggressive actions to maintain the dollar standard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if China starts winning on a scale that you're describing, I think a lot of the temptation, a lot of the forces in American leadership would drive us towards increased tension and then conflict and then some sort of open conflict. Mm-hmm. The problem is obviously it's catastrophic for everyone if the U.S. and China go to full-fledged mm-hmm. w- war. The catalyst for this is probably going to be Taiwan, um, which I have deep relationships with. My right. uh, my dad's there right now. My cousins are there. Uh, and everything is indicating that China is uh, trying to reintegrate Taiwan at, at some point. I mean, that's been their avowed policy for you know decades yeah, and decades. Yeah. But it, it seems like that's going to be the logical flashpoint because the U.S. has uh, the equivalent of a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. The last time China started encroaching, the U.S. sent aircraft carriers and the rest of it. Uh, it's an open question what the U.S. response would be. It does seem like there are a lot of elements uh, of U.S. leadership, though, that are kind of looking for a reason to confront China mm-hmm. while they think that the conflict, if it has to happen, is more winnable. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. 
No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. The Taiwan situation, I'm, this is my opinion, but curious your thoughts. It's something I think you could see, probably folks on the left, but you could see like a social justice movement in the United States, like getting ignited around that as like maybe less so than you would see like infringement upon the value of the US dollar or other kind of geopolitical foreign policy topics. Is that what you're talking about where we start, like you start getting public pressure from voters in the United States on our position on Taiwan or... Well, what's interesting is I I think that standing up to China would be something that voters on both sides of the aisle would probably get behind. Uh, Now, (laughs) I laugh. I'm laughing because I I would have said the same thing about vaccines. (laughs) Uh, Well, on on this one, what's interesting is Republicans have historically been more uh, enthusiastic about standing up to China when, when it comes to encroaching on a democracy like Taiwan. And Taiwan is a democracy. So... It's, it, 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 I imagine, and this is something that I, I feel, you know, very deeply and strongly about, that I, I imagine this is going to play out in our lifetimes in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the most important questions or challenges. There are different approaches you could take. And I get asked about foreign policy periodically. And when I was running for president, it was seen as something that, uh, you know, I like I needed to shore up because obviously I hadn't... Uh, um, served in the military, uh, and so there was no reason uh, to prize my foreign policy. <laughs> You're right, expertise. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, one of, one of the things I, I would suggest is that I feel like so much of our thinking has been institutionalized. Where if you ask the vast majority of Americans, like, hey, you know, have we spent way too much on these foreign theaters, including Afghanistan, cost all this? blood and treasure, you know, for what? Most everyone would be like, yeah, it's right. been messed up. There's this military industrial complex that has run amok. Uh, and I do believe that it's going to try and lead us to war with China. One of the things I heard from someone who's inside the bowels of one of these major military suppliers was after the Cold War ended, people actually said, okay, like, what's the next war going to be? Because right. we need another war. And mm-hmm. so they just start tearing, steering us towards it because that's where the Economic hundreds of billions or trillions are, yeah. get made. The ah, America. We throw around the term military industrial complex. Chelsea Gabbard ran on a lot, but it really is just economic incentives to stay at war, right? Um, and jobs and livelihoods. and Which, in a way, is the emblem for what it is that I think we're trying to fight. When I say we, I mean certainly me and you and forward. But what are the incentives really should be the most important question in American life now. Mm-hmm. And one of the messages I have is that if everyone obeys their incentives, we're fucked. Yeah. Um, and that means politically, it, and that what we're talking about now in terms of foreign policy is similar. It's like, well, what's in my best interest if I'm one of these megacorps? It's like, let, let, let's, uh, 
let's go pick a fight. And then the rest of us will be looking up being like, well, that, that doesn't seem right. Uh, in, in, a, in many ways, it's trying to break this institutionalization that is the primary mission for America right now. If you could get in there, and this is very, very difficult. I mean, we're trying to do it with the political industrial complex. You get in there and be like, hey, mm -hmm. the two parties spent $2.65 billion just trying to defeat each other in congressional races. Most of that canceled each other out. All it did was inflame us and piss us off at each other. Right. Uh, you know, you have to get in there and be like, no, this isn't right. It's like, hey, we spent $3 trillion, uh, in Afghanistan for, for what? Well, you know, like, like if you just to take any normal person with common sense, they'd go in and say, what are we doing? But there are these incredibly powerful forces that are going to try and drive you in particular directions. Right. Um, and that's a lot of what the forward party is. I think a lot of people... The misnomer, or at least on social, or like the kind of the false narrative, in my opinion, on from social media I've seen is that the forward party is a centrist party. We're like diving down the middle, and there's some truth to that. We're like not left or right, forward. Like I'm trying to be rational, right? But a lot of it is very, very major change, progressive, like ranked choice voting and open primaries, where you're actually like fixing and ripping apart the plumbing. Like we are talking, you are talking about major change. This isn't like a hey, like. Just so you don't have to hold your nose, we have a moderate party. You know what I'm saying? Like um, I do know what you're saying. It's so interesting. Like it's not the moderate party. I mean, it does. It's going to attract a lot of moderates, but it's still talking about fundamental reform. Yeah, it's funny where you have to identify what structures you're trying to disrupt or mm. uh, advance. And when you talk about trying to disrupt the duopoly, then you wind up in this centrist zone, even if your vision may be pretty dramatic right you know like one of the things i say in my book is like we should have universal health care yeah now like you know that that does, might not seem very moderate or incremental it's just, but to me it's common sense and you know if you disagree with that hey you know it's cool we can, yeah we can disagree yeah. uh you know for universal basic income which struck people as very dramatic not that long ago even though now two-thirds of americans of every alignment are for it mm -hmm. uh so that it, it's it's interesting i think that the, the reason why I'm kind of cool with the entire like centrist moderate label is that at this point, all of politics is tribal. Mm. And what we're trying to do is attract a particular tribe that responds to a particular political language. Mm -hmm. And that language is facts, figures, reason, solutions, optimism, mm -hmm. possibility, entrepreneurship, positivity. Like, like, like that, that language, I think, can ignite... And I, I have this joke um, when I do my book talks about it. It's like, what percentage of Americans respond to the language of facts? And then people think about it. Uh, and then I, I tell them, it's like, look, it's not 51%. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sorry. Like, yeah. I mean, if you had the actual number, I throw out there, and I'm being a bit conservative, but I'm saying, let's call it 10 to 20%. Yeah. But if you got 10 to 20% of Americans on board with the forward party and this movement, we win. Yep. Because with that percentage, you can transform politics. With that percentage, you can actually win, let's call it two Senate seats. How many Senate seats do you need to control the agenda? One, apparently. Apparently talking, one. That's right. <laughs> and it could be realistic for us to get that one Senate seat in 2022. Yeah. So when people look at it and be like, oh, can't win 51%, it's like, well, if I get 10, 15% and we can win a race or two, we can actually be the fulcrum on which everything turns yeah. or is balanced. Uh, so that's one of the fun things about what we're building is the new tribe um, – can attract people for different reasons. Uh, and it's been a funny adjustment for me just thinking, oh, all politics are tribal and the language of facts will attract certain people.
Joe Manchin seems to be the senator from West Virginia, seems to be the most powerful person in the world right now, at least from a from a media agenda setting standpoint. He is a moderate, I think we're fair, and he's like kind of like run on. He's like I'm not, you know, a, cons- a hyper conservative. I'm not a pro Trump hardcore. Republican, but so I'm a Democrat, but sometimes a Democrat in name only just to kind of win over some independence. And, um, but my, my question for you is, is kind of transitioning to what's happening in the news right now, where I feel like one man from West Virginia who lives in West Virginia, which is a very different place than most of the country, ignoring political views, it's just his own place. I've been to West Virginia. It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful, but it's different. Um, that man's political views are going to shape at least they're shaping our policy agenda right now. Um, is the dream of the forward party to get more Joe Manchins in there that are maybe um, a little more open-minded? What What's the um, the concept there? And then maybe how's it in your eyes playing out in the um, current Biden agenda goals through Congress? So let's talk about what's going on with the Democrats and the two major bills. Now, there was all of this pressure to try and deliver the bills at the end of September because that was the express timeline and people were promised to vote. Mm-hmm. And then that evaporated. They said, okay, we're going to do it now by the end of October. I am concerned that it's going to be difficult to create that urgency again uh, because you know you have all these late nights and everyone's building towards it and then you send everyone home, then everyone can kind of get more entrenched and say, right. oh, and, and then it seems like it is possible that it falls apart because it's, it's fallen apart mm-hmm. once. Uh, now, on the other side of the ledger, it is legitimately political malpractice and suicide for the Democrats not to pass both the infrastructure bill and some version of the reconciliation. Right. It, like this is literally their their lone shot at it, and they need to get it done, essentially right. regardless of the political consequences for them. Because one of the strange things that's going on right now is it's not clear that they're going to get a proper level of political credit. Uh, I just saw a graphic where something like 28% of Americans think that this mega bill is going to help them, which is, by the way, inaccurate. It would touch more than 20%. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, like child tax credit alone is, um, you know, in in excess of that number, um, I think. So the fact that Joe Manchin controls the agenda, like I talked to someone who's close to the process, and the fact is Democrats are just kind of glad they have a Democrat in West Virginia. So, you know, they look at it where, like Joe Manchin's kind of extra. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It was like West Virginia, by rights, a very red state. I think right. it was like Trump plus 16 or something like that. Right. So the fact that they have a walking, talking Democrat in West Virginia, they're, 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 right. they're just like, whatever, Joe, like, we'll, we'll, we'll work with it. Yes. Um, in some ways, the more interesting figure is Kirsten Cinema, mm-hmm. even though Arizona is purple, uh, Kirsten Cinema came from the left. Uh, and um, she's, I think, viewed as in some ways, uh, someone who would be more likely to be on board with this agenda than Joe mm-hmm. Banshin originally. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So Joe, Joe in particular, um, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, he had just come out saying um, the child tax credit, which is doing right now, needs to be means tested. And it brought up an old argument that we had talked about a lot on, when you're running for president, where a lot of people had said your freedom dividend should be means tested. And what I mean by means tested, for those of you who don't particularly know these, is testing based on your means or quote unquote income. So instead of giving $1,000 a month, if we're talking about universe-based income, instead of giving that to everybody, you give it to everybody who's over a certain income level. If you make more than $35,000 a year, whatever that number is, you don't get it. You've, you've come out against that many times. Like in this particular case, why is it bad? Or in general, why do you disagree with it? I generally dislike means testing because I think that the administration's a pain. It causes people to play games and, and misreport. Uh, it stigmatizes things. Mm -hmm. uh, giving people some stuff that they don't need, you know, to me is not that big a problem. Right. Um, in the context of the child tax credit, I understand why someone would want to means test it. Yeah. Or he and said I, work requirements too. Yeah. So it's both income and, and work. Yeah. Yeah. The, the work requirement is a whole nother ball yeah, of wax. Right. Uh, like I, I would understand different limits on income for the child tax credit because there are some wealthy families who, you know, it's like the, the mm -hmm. child tax credit doesn't really affect them or touch them. Right. Uh, and in some ways, Identifying families that need the child tax credit is, is something that is a little bit easier because uh, in, in this instance, most of these families do have tax returns and the rest of it, mm -hmm. uh, and their situation theoretically, I guess, is somewhat stable over time. Uh, I'd still prefer not to be means tested, but I don't hate the means testing as much uh, if we're talking specifically about the child tax kids, credit. Yeah. yeah. And if it causes the child tax credit to be... Uh, persistent or even uh, perpetual, then I, I you know, again, uh, at uh, this point, right. like in, anything we can do to help on that side, I, I'm for. Uh, it is wild, though, how much influence that that Joe has. Uh, and I, I'm, I will say that I've gotten some word that people are optimistic that the child tax credit will at least be included in the reconciliation bill on, on in some form. So, the conservative argument I always heard about means testing or work requirements, things like this, is, is something actually very visceral or like it's instinctive to a lot of humans. It was like, well, you're just going to give it away for free. Who's paying for that, right? Um, and you would make an argument, which I agree with, especially when you look at numbers, that that makes sense on the face of it. We're like, yeah, we shouldn't just like blindly be giving away things. But the, the cost associated with enforcing that and the nominal amount of people who are faking it or abusing the system it's usually more expensive to enforce it. And for what, right? Like for a very small margin. Um, 
And I'm at, that still plays out with the child tax credit, I think, too, right? There will be, sure, there will be some who are, I don't know, having babies for more income. Geez, whatever your, your, your yeah, dark no, lead, story. The, the, yeah, the dark uh, story. I mean, it's my mom worked at a, a um, halfway house. She has seen, like, um, let's call it the cycle of poverty where people are literally just living on government checks and never have intention of getting a job. But I would say that's the exception, not the rule, and usually part of a darker system than... Um, the kind of the conservative argument of rewarding bad behavior. Um, but thought like, you know, this, in this case, it would, um, you'd probably be more expensive to enforce it. No, uh, no, you know, in, in this case, enforcing it would not be very expensive because all they're going to do is draw an income threshold and or for a child tax credit. Like, yeah. Okay, the child tax credit. They're just going to say like, look, you make above a certain amount, you don't get it or it scales it. down it's just based on your tax returns. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you, I guess probably want to do, I, do you think, are we in a situation right now where whatever Joe Manchin says, the Biden administration is going to just bend over backwards to appeal to? Is it him and Kristen that are? Are we gonna like? Are we just following their lead on our legislation now, or is there room for compromise in your in your opinion? Joe Joe Manchin and Kirsten said him uh, control the show. agenda. Whatever whatever they say, they'll allow in uh, is going to happen because at this point, the vast like literally, it's like ninety eight percent of the other Democrats are like, let let's do some version of this. Here are the different provisions. So there, there are a bunch of variables, a bunch of balls in the air about things that may or may not be in uh, the the final version. Uh, it, it's kind of wild, really, like all of the unknowns because they had this list of things that they wanted to get in. The headline cost was three and a half trillion. Now it looks like the final bill is going to be a little more than half that size. Mm-hmm. People are talking about two trillion. Mm-hmm. So then, where do you get the one point five trillion dollars in savings? Mm-hmm. One of the major question marks for a lot of them was: Are we going to take the same amount of programs and just shorten the time? Because one thing we don't talk about enough. Is that even the three point five trillion was over ten years? You're looking at three hundred fifty billion a year. Mm-hmm. It's a it's like something like a nine percent increase in federal spending. It's a lot, but it's not three and a half trillion a year. It's right. like you know. And, and so then, if you shrink it to two trillion, let's say, you could do the exact same things as you wanted to do originally over five and a half years instead of ten or something like right. that. So that was one model. And then the other model is like let's fully pay for it and stretch it around the ten. Is there any logic to Getting this stuff, getting it through the, getting it through Congress, and then working out the details later, right? Where you know you pass a bill, it's five years, but then we try to extend it to ten, and then went into less toxic. Well, well that's one of the arguments too. Is football. like after you do it, they can't undo it. Right. So, th- so that's one of the rationales behind just trying to shorten the time frame. Right. Uh, On so the other hand, is that they could undo it, and they're, they're <laughs> looking at like, yeah. especially if the Republicans win Congress next fall, which betting markets have that as a seventy-two percent likelihood. That high? Yes. Uh, two long-standing Democrats just said they would not run for a re-election, which I have to say, and I met one of them, Mike Doyle. He's a really good dude. He's in Pennsylvania. He's not running. He's not running again. And and so if you have folks like that not running again. They're looking up and saying, one, they might not win their races because Mike was in a competitive part of PA. Mm-hmm. But two, also, they, they don't think they're going to be in the majority. And, and so no, that, that sucks, that, too. That, yeah, so that sucks, too. So there are data points that are making it quite pessimistic that Democrats will retain the majority in the House in 2022. One of the reasons I love the forward parties, because on the, on the presidential, I got to know... Not well, but I got I, I sat on a couple planes next to senators or picked their brain. And people, you know, people you wouldn't normally expect to spend time with, got to spend time with. And a lot of, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave, they were confidential conversations, but um, a lot of them were running for president because there was nothing to do as a senator. 
because either if they weren't majority, there's literally nothing to do. And if they were in the majority, they didn't get a bill until hours before the vote happened. Um, and that's a problem, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, one of the places we saw this recently was freaking the, the crypto provisions and the infrastructure package. Oh, yeah. Where they were doing the infrastructure package, and then someone's like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to throw some language of crypto, and we're going to define broker dealers this way. And then the cryptocurrency industry looked up and was like, wait, what? When you're doing what? <laughs> what? And it was so last minute. There was not much consultation. People came in and said, look, like let's amend this language to be more reasonable. And then one senator killed that. Uh, and so I think if people understood just how hurried this legislative process is, mm-hmm. you'd be saddened. You know, legislators complain to me, or not to me, to everyone, just say, look, you're giving me a thousand page bill and you're giving me you know, 36 hours to review it. The whole thing's yeah. like r- ridiculous. Um, and sometimes the people that are making those complaints are in the same party. It's it's not even that there's the minority party, which yeah. is like, well, I guess I'm going to vote against this thing. <laughs> it's like you're the same party and it's like, what the heck am I going to do? And then they were like, fall in line, do it, vote for it. I was uh, a friend of mine works on Capitol Hill and she told me her job, like the vast, she works for a, um, a senator. I'll, I'll leave nameless for now, but uh, a Democrat. And one of the things she said was that a, a big part of her job is making sure the senator is present to actually vote because when the votes happen you never know what's going on it's last minute it's like we're voting in 20 minutes or voting in an hour whatever it is and literally they miss you miss votes and you don't know what you're voting on but you just have to line up and actually vote because that's you know literally the job um so they have a full-time person just to make sure they physically <laughs> are present to vote um which to me feels like a bit of a waste of resources in the sense that they're all pretty talented um enough to, you know, maybe if they had a little lead time to like manage their own schedule on that. But anyway, here we are, brother. Yes. <laughs> I, I did get some attention for advocating for term limits, uh, this past week, yeah, um, and, and I, I do think, a bit. and I do think right now that this is an issue. And you know, it's funny as people are pushing back on it, be like, oh, you understand? It's like, what? what I, I don't think people realize that one three quarters of Americans are for this, and there was tremendous momentum around this in the '90s. So much so that a half a dozen states actually passed term limits for their own representatives in '94, where they were like, hey, let, let, let's this do this. Bad, yeah, and then majority of House members in 1995 said voted on term limits to pass them. So not that long ago, everyone was like, oh, this is the right move. And then the Supreme Court voted 5-4 saying, no, you can't vote term limits for your own representatives, which is a very, very strange ruling, I'm going to suggest, because there's no rule about any of this anywhere. And so if a state wanted to circumscribe the duration of their (laughs) representative stinted Congress, it seems to me like they should be able to do it. Whenever I was running for president and mentioned this, everyone just freaking applaud. Like everyone wanted term yeah. limits out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the counter arguments against it. Yeah, are who's pushing so, back? What are these counter arguments? Please. The counter arguments uh, are institutional pro- knowledge. It's institutional knowledge, which again, like, so I'm proposing term limits of 18 years per house. Um, that because, so there, there's a legitimate argument against term limits and here it is is that if, let's say I had term limits of six years or eight years, which they do in California, Mm -hmm. 
people show up and they're not even able to organize into coalitions. They don't really know what's going on. And then the lobbyists just freaking run rings around them and just be like, you guys don't, don't know the what's up. The institutions go around the elected officials, right? It's the consultants that stick around and leech or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's so much churn that yeah. the, you can't actually build like the the proper degree of... And people probably just run for their next office too. If you, if you have to be out in a certain amount of time... Yeah, it's a little bit too short term. Yeah. So that so there's a very legitimate counter argument to this. It's one reason why I, I'm proposing 18 years per house because that's six house terms, three senate terms. It's enough time for you to actually build a degree yep. of organization uh, and hierarchy. And also, if you served in both houses, you could have a very full 36 year career. Yeah, you could do it for all. Be, yeah. Being a, a representative. So so that strikes me as like the right balance. Um, so the, the, the legitimate counter argument is like, look, you can't make it too short. And I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, 18 years is a pretty long time. And when people, the other thing they talk about is like the learning curve. And I'm just like, what learning curve takes more than 18 years? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, by year 28, like that's when I really started to understand, you know, like, and, and right now there is a very, very strange seniority based hierarchy going on in the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ro Khanna said you have people who won election in the 80s and 90s running the place who then uh, cater to people who won 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, Nancy Pelosi, 81 years old. Steny Hoyer, also 81, I believe. Chuck Schumer is a relatively spry 70. Uh, Mitch McConnell, 79. The the folks who are in charge of these places have been there forever. And the deficiencies, in my mind, are, uh, one, you're just behind the curve all the time. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if, if you go to them about social media, they don't understand at all because you know, they might never have checked email. Mm-hmm. You know, like th- think about your 80-year-old relatives. Like my, my dad's 83. Uh, you know, like how much does he understand about these platforms? Very, very little. Uh, and those, those are people who are running the show. Um, so that's one problem. Yeah. Uh, the, the other problem is that I do think you get more institutionalized the longer you're in D.C. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you're there for 10, 12 years, it's still going to be pretty extreme, but if you're there for like 20, 25, 30 years, it's also not great even for um, just the 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 fact that health will start becoming an issue for some of these legislators. You have Chuck Grassley, who's 88, who's running again. You have uh, Dianne Feinstein, who's 88, and there have been reports about her losing her, her faculties, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which... I mean, that's not a knock on her. It's like, what 88-year-old? <laughs> like, yeah. like is, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's, or, or, and this isn't directly about term limits, but it's, it actually, I'm going to suggest, does have a relationship um, that the two presidential candidates may have a combined age of 158 in uh, 2024. You know, and, and that, that there's like a product of this seniority system that really is, in my mind, detrimental uh, to a system that rejuvenates itself or refreshes its own leadership. Uh, so I, I think term limits make sense, uh, and most Americans agree. And then there's like a very, very strange tribe of people over like, no, you know, like you, uh, and and I'm just like, what is why, what is the problem? And I even have a way that's like, look, if you love some of the people who are currently in office, okay, I get it. You're very attached. It's cool. 
what I'm suggesting is you vote in term limits and say it doesn't apply to current legislators mm -hmm. because that way they don't have to kick themselves out right. because it's too much to ask for them to say, hey, like I'm immediately going to retire after I pass this bill. Right. So you can have essentially like a grandfathered in class of legislators who will just be knocking around the place for as long as they can win. <laughs> and then everyone who comes in after them is subject to these 18 year limits. But eventually this group would phase out and then you'd have like a genuinely dynamic self-restoring culture, which ideally, by the way, would not consist of people who are only in two parties. Right. Ideally, you'd have people who are in multiple parties uh, being able to build different coalitions that, again, would refresh themselves. If the Ford Party has its way, there'll be open primaries and ranked choice voting, and then you might see some new perspectives emerge. Do you think it's hard for people to go from politics back into the real world? Oh, yeah. For sure. Is a reason, you know, like, you know, like an incentive to. This is something forever. that I'm so glad you raised this, Zach, because one of the things I, I think we should be doing, we should be just throwing cash at legislators to leave their fucking jobs. You know what I mean? Uh, because right now it's like their, their job is like much better than anything else they could do. And then lobbying a lobbyist is the best thing they could ever do. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's like we should just be like, hey, as soon as you're in Congress, you should be like throwing cash at you to stop being a legislator. Anytime you stop. <laughs> I like it. It's probably good ROI. I guess the point is like if you're a, a senator or you're a former governor, Christie, I mean, he had some, you know, some, I guess a little bit of a scandal, but Governor Chris Christie, after that, what do you do? Let's say you're not disgraced. Let's say you're just, you're just, just a dude. You're gonna or you lost. Like, that's, well, what do you do? If you look at what most former politicians do, they become some version of lobbyist, connection maker, influence peddler. Often Some associated, are private attorneys, right? Like, I guess... Uh, often associated with a law firm yeah. or with a uh, financial services firm in some cases. Yep. Because a lot of these law firms and financial services firms do just traffic and relationships. So if you get someone who's really, really plugged in and they can make phone calls to a very, very senior person, that might be worth a six-figure salary to you just to have that person around. Yep. Maybe they bring in some business. Maybe they, they rain make. Maybe they, you trot them out for clients and they're just excited to talk to someone who you know, has been in that kind of position. Every Fortune 100... I don't know if it's every, but it's the vast majority. It's probably the vast majority of the Fortune 500. Every public company usually has some form of public policy office, and they pay someone decently handsomely, six-figure salary. Um, some at UBS, we had a whole team of folks that just traffic in D.C., you know, call up relationships. Um, so that makes sense. But those jobs, if you're a legislator or someone who's been, like when you're a candidate, you're star of the show. It's, you know, your name's on the ballot. It's months and months and years and years of your name and your fundraisers and your luncheons and your donations and your fans, all this stuff. And then to tell people to turn that off and probably go to income zero or be like behind the scenes. It's a like, they take the human side. Some people are like, oh, who cares? You're just a politician. But there's a human side of it that why would you, like, leaving sucks. Leaving is not better than sitting around doing nothing, collecting a paycheck in DC and having all the accolades I was just talking about. Yeah, you're the center of a lot of attention. Yeah. You go in a room and people uh, like really uh, want to get in front of you and the rest of it. Yeah. And, and giving that up is very difficult for you people. You made it. All your elementary school, all your teachers are proud of you. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know? Uh, you mounted to something. You know what I'd compare it to? And this is something I'll, I'll speak to personally, you yeah. know, because yeah, like, you, and I, you, you and I you resemble, you and I this, resemble yeah. this. I'd compare it to being a performer in a creative field uh, or being a professional athlete. Mm. So let's say you're a professional athlete and then you're like, hey, your career's over, like go back. And then what? Like for that athlete, they're like, oh, nothing's as as 
visceral and competitive and real and engaging as being on a field. And so, you know, maybe I get into coaching, maybe I get into media, maybe yeah. I get into business and I fart around. Like that transition is very, very difficult. It's brutal. Our boy JJ Reddick just retired. For professional athletes. Yeah, yeah we got to have JJ in. We should have JJ. He's, um, he's a good person. Yeah. He'll be it, but like he's like talented on camera enough and has done some things outside of basketball. He's talking about the average. Yeah, I mean, I mean, J- J- JJ is exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I was the entrepreneurship mentor a an entrepreneurship mentor for the NBA Players Association yeah. for uh, several years. Right. I met dozens of former players and most of them really really deeply struggle with the transition. Yes. Uh, and there are a number of reasons they've been laser focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. They can't do that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks that they're made of money when often they are not. They mm-hmm. have dozens of people that rely upon them. Mm-hmm. They also aren't very good at evincing either ignorance uh, or doubt. So if someone comes to them and is like, hey, here's this thing and they don't understand it, mm-hmm. then they don't uh, admit they don't understand it. Their like, job is are, not to fail their whole life, right? Yeah, people are always trying to take advantage of them. Yep. <laughs> so, so it's a very, very tough thing. For If you're a performer, then you feel like you're you know, not cool anymore. It has been. It's like, mm-hmm. let's say you were a musician, you were in front of a bunch of people, and then that now, you know, no one uh, listens to your stuff anymore, or, or you're not, or you're an actor and you were in some duds, and then no one wants to cast you. Or you're the you. actor that everybody knows the role you were in, but you never got anything else, you know, for a number yeah. of reasons. You were in Glee as a tertiary character, whatever it is. Uh, so that's what I think <laughs> being a politician is like for mm-hmm. a, a lot of yeah. folks. It's like you're the center of the vortex, and then you leave, and then it's like, oh, and you want to stay in that pocket, even though there are some elements of it that are you know, not fun, but it's still a hundred times more exciting Mm -hmm. uh, and relevant Mm -hmm. than the other things that you would do. And so I'm going to speak personally about, you know, my own experience in this light. Because of the folks who've supported me, and thank you again for this, like I feel like I'm now someone who might be able to make a difference in American life. And so I'm going to try and use that to spotlight the fact that our system right now is designed to pit us against each other and, and frustrate us and uh, elevate the polarization. And we need to try and change the wiring of the system. Now, I, I'm a fairly... I think, you know, I'm like a right. fairly normal, well-adjusted person. Uh, you know, uh, that excerpt from my book that was in Politico was talking about how, you know, power causes brain damage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, you've been around me, and I think, you know, to the extent that someone can get through that process without uh, real personality, like, transformation into, like, you know, uh, like someone that everyone hates. <laughs> it changes <laughs> you. I'm, the, you know, the, I'm a different the, human from the So we're, we're definitely yeah. different humans. Um, but the, the tough thing is that at root, and you know this about me, is that before I ran for office, I was an operator. I like machine, you know, I, li- I like building orgs. I like do- doing solving things. Solving problems, yeah. Yeah, solving problems. And then now, uh, like, the, our operation actually consists of me putting ideas out, speaking, uh, doing media, talking, talking you know, being figured, trying to build a movement, trying to build a new political party, which, by the way, is like an extraordinarily, you know, like tough challenge. Yes. I mean, people look at it and like, I, I'm, I'm well aware of the fact that other people have tried to do it and it has not gone well. And like, I, I believe that we're going to break through and the early returns are very positive. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I understand it. And one of the things that blows my mind is that 
I'm in a position, and again, I'm grateful to everyone who supported me, where I enjoy most of the fruits of successful political runs despite not having uh, actually won. Where, like, the, the, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I do. <laughs> you, you, you have know. fans. Most people don't get fans until after elected. Um, AOC, for example. She, like, who she is, she was not that before she won. She won in a district, and she yeah. it was incredible that she won. But she became AOC after she won, right? Um, anyway, sorry I interrupted, but you're No, right. no, it's fine. So I, I try to appreciate what, what it is other people go through. I mean, politics is rough, and politics does destroy people. Like, it, it destroys, the, you know, their families, their relationships. Uh, you know, people come and they burn out in various ways. You and I know, like— a dozen people who burnt out, which I, I totally appreciate. Yeah. And may they, you know, recover. That's <laughs> the presidential politics too. That's a crucible in its own way. Um, so that, so this is, you know, I, so I, I do think term limits, it would be important in part because uh, people are not going to want to leave the stage and, uh, you know, unless they're kicking and screaming. And so if, if you build something in, and I do think we should be just giving them massive, like off ramps uh, to be like, hey, great job! You were a member of Congress. You're now not anymore. Here's like a freaking giant stipend. That Here's you a two-year salary you figure you step out, right? So that, but you'd have to say that on the front end, so you could attract oh, more talent. Right? What, what I said on the front end is like I said that you can go to any nonprofit or academic institution and ha- and bring with you a stipend of a hundred thousand dollars a year on top of whatever they'll pay you right. for a decade. It's essentially like a million dollar mm. kind of um, like off ramp. Um, and I, I thought that would be a pretty good deal because you could go anywhere and just bring your own money with you, and then everyone would hire you, and they'd probably pay you on top. This of is interesting. Pay. Don't don't get me wrong; they they'd probably pay you on top because hundred grand's like you know not not like um, depends where you live. But a lot of these folks are not used to just making that much money, right? Uh, they'd want to make more, but they uh, they could. Um, that that's a that's not a terrible idea, right? Yeah, you could it's come not with a bad. You. I like incentives for more people to run for office. I like getting. You'd have to fix up. You know, doing these things in a vacuum, not great. Like I think a lot, like you know, uh, you've seen the stats on people's net worth before they get to Congress, and then they're how do after. they become so rich? The whole thing is so weird. Yeah, it's like tips, they show right? up normal. Uh, you know, this is another thing too. Someone asked me, it's like, do you think that members of Congress should be restricted from owning stock? And I do. It's just too easy a way to be corrupt. Yeah. Um, now, again, I have nothing against people making money. Like I'd be totally cool with you just being like, look. We're going to pay you more. We're going to give you giant bonuses when you leave. Like, I, I don't want you to think about money. That stuff is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but saying like, hey, you can own stock. And by the way, you're in a position where everyone's going to want to try and make you happy so they can get some special treatment. Like, that's a pretty dumb. It's a conflict of interest shit. Yeah. Um, it's, I imagine it's, um, they're dealing with, when you're a politician, you are raising money from some of the wealthiest people in the world. Well, people who can write a $2,800 check or $5,000 check, whatever it is. And, and they, they, a lot of and them run companies. A yep. lot of them run companies. And they have private companies. They're like, hey, you know, want to invest in this? Get an early ground floor. And they love putting, here's the other, they love putting you on a board of advisors or you are a legitimizer automatically. That's how I think this works. Um, some of you, the, some of it's probably the Kelly Leffler, uh, like it's actual corrupt actual. shit. Um, a, think, a lot of it's that gray area. I agree. Yeah. It's just um, like, hey, I've got this great deal. Like and the Clinton Whitewater thing, that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas I, oh, you know, it would be great. Like I've got this company. I think it's going to go great. You know, be great for you as our advisor. We'll give you some shares in this company. And, you know, you let us use your name behind the scenes to say as you're, you're blessing our legitimacy. And then it works out for them. That's not great. Um, I think it's, it's like the dark money. There's a lot of this kind of soft corruption. Yeah. Really. Um, it's the incentive thing. Where it's, it's the incentive, incentive thing, thing all over right? again. Incentives are, they're all just trying to, everybody's just trying to, like, like, you know, there's plenty of people that have good intentions, but at the end of the day, they're just trying to 
take care of their kids, frankly. Um, yeah, and, and it's one of the quotes from Ezra that, that I used in my book, Ezra Klein, yeah. where he talks about how toxic systems compromise good individuals with ease. Yeah. That, that really is the issue. And if you wanted to be serious about having different outcomes, you'd have very different incentives, and you would invest more in both rewarding people trying to align their incentives and, and try and clean it up. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll shift gears a, li- a bit as we wrap this up. You had said something, um, and maybe a good thing to end on. You had talked about the lack of folks apologizing. I, so I had this exchange with someone, and they, they talked about uh, mistakes made and like uh, politicians accepting blame. And then what I said to them was like, look, at this point in American life, if you accept blame for anything, all it's going to do is fuel negative news cycles. And yeah. so when the Afghanistan withdrawal happened and then Joe Biden was put in that position, he had to essentially be like, everything was perfect. Everyone agreed. We're all on board. The plan was perfect uh, <laughs> and executed. Um, and, you know, people can be mad at him for that. But if he had said, yeah, like, you know, there was disagreement, the generals disagreed, which, by the way, came out later where the generals right. apparently said, like, hey, we weren't on board with this. Um, all it's going to do is fuel very, very negative news coverage. So you have a set of system of incentives now where no one can admit fault because if they admit fault, they're just going to get um, pelted for an extra day or two. Whereas if they mm. just stonewall and say, it was perfect, we did it. And if that sounds familiar to you, I mean, it sounds a little bit Trumpian, but like, but that's where the incentives are going, where you don't want to admit fault. And it's going to make, unfortunately, our leaders seem less and less uh, humble and human over time. I feel like we could do a whole episode on this, but what you're talking about is authenticity, and there's a difference between authenticity of uh, institutions and individuals. And the institutions in general, it's harder for them to be authentic because if you're the CDC, you can't be like, hey, the vaccine's like, okay, or vaccine's really awesome, but it's not perfect. You got to be like, take vaccine, it's awesome, right? That's their yeah, job. Yeah, that's true. Um, there becomes a party line. Yeah, and if you're, and the problem is if you're, um, if you're a human and you mess up your individual, you do something, you're confident, you messed up, you'll get a lot of negative press on the mess up, but you're gonna get a lot more press or just as much press at times for the apology on the mess up. So then you end up in this weird spot. And the key, I think, is to just be authentic the whole time, which I think you're generally pretty good at. But we've had our mistakes in times where you like, oh yeah, that wasn't great or whatever it it may be. Um, Well, I'll tell you, I've been in that position now and like the media incentives truly are just to be like, uh, it was great. Yeah, it went great. It was great. Because if, if you say it wasn't great, all you're going to do is get like a whole new spate of stories being like, you know, they said it wasn't great. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and then, it, you know, you, you so that that's it's going to distort things for for everyone. And so I closed that conversation with um, the the person, the questioner. I said, that's why we never admit fault. And, you know, <laughs> the, like so it was, it was good for a laugh. But it's unfortunately somewhat accurate. The media wants the apology all the time, even if you um don't have anything to apologize for, but there's there's times in that situation you feel like an asshole for not apologizing because you know there's things going wrong or whatever it is. And, yeah, and then everyone uh, around you will advise you be like, look, don't apologize. Don't. All it does is be one more news cycle. We're just trying to make yep. this news cycle end. Oh, we could do a whole episode of this. Maybe we will. Anyway, um, I'm wearing my Buffalo Bills right now because we're recording this on Monday Night Football. But on Thursday, if the Bills lose tonight, which not gonna win, we're winning tonight, but if we did lose, be nice. Forward tour continuing. Thank you all for the support. Much love. I will see you on the road.